You know, every time we say welcome our internet audience, it's, it's kind of cool to stop and think that there's hundreds of people uh, at any given time not in this building who are actually partaking in this very service with us. And just the power of technology, that's such a cool thing that we're able to use it as a resource for the kingdom of God. You know, you look at, at technology and, and it's amazing how the more technology advances and progresses, it seems like the younger it is that children are when they start to catch on and really become experts at technology. You know, I, I used to laugh when I was still living at home and my brother Gabe, he's now 13, but when he was three and four, you come in the room and no one would have been in there with him, but he's got a DVD playing and he's eating a bowl of popcorn and you're like, huh? And it is, it's just kids catch on to technology. And it's funny because my grandma, I don't even know if she knows how to work a DVD player. And I'll say that because she's sitting right here. But now that I'm, I'm a father, a lot of you know I have a little boy, Gavin. He's two. He'll be three in June. Actually, one month after we're expecting our second a little girl. So exciting times for us. But now that I'm a, a parent, I'm seeing more and more how kids catch on to technology and how that not necessarily is always a good thing. Um, we, ha- we have a Netflix subscription. And if you're not familiar with Netflix, then you need to get with the times. But essentially, Netflix, it's an internet subscription service where basically you... Um, you pay like a monthly fee and you get thousands of movies and television shows that you can, uh, they'll either send them in the mail, but the latest thing they have is instant streaming. It'll stream to your computer or your Xbox or your Wii or whatever device you have. You can stream it right there instantly. And so that's a great thing to have in the house, especially for Gavin, because there's so many kids shows and cartoons and he loves it. But one thing that Netflix does, it's kind of smart because based on your viewing history, it'll recommend other titles to you. And so when a show ends, the menu pops up and it says, based on your viewing history, we recommend, and it'll show some stuff. And usually you always see the covers in the movies. So I'm sitting there watching something with Gavin. We're all piled in the bed as a family. He watches a lot of cartoons and something pops up on the screen and he goes, oh, I want to watch that, Daddy. He didn't know what it was, but the particular title, it was, it was kind of scary. Even though it was a cartoon, I didn't, I didn't want him watching it. And so I said, no, buddy. I'm like, we can't. That's scary. And he goes, I want to watch scary. And I said, no, we're not watching scary. So we put something else on. And it's funny how parents can get so sucked into a show that their kid is watching. And then you look and you've been watching this show for 20 minutes and you're like, wait, where's, where's the kid? You know? <laughs> And that, happen, that happens a lot with Gavin. We'll be watching, like, I, I don't even know. What's a show, babe? Super Y. Don't even ask. But that's one of his favorites. And he'll leave the room, and we're watching Super Y for the last half hour. So anyways, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was that we were watching that night. But the next thing I know, I kind of stop and look, and I don't see Gavin. And then I see this mound in the middle of the bed, and he's under the covers. And I see a little glow. I see a light under the, under the blanket. <laughs> so I pull the blanket back. I say, buddy, what are you doing? And he goes... I'm watching scary. <laughs> and I look, he, ha- he has my iPhone. He knows how to unlock it. And I have my apps categorized alphabetically in little folders. He went to the exact folder, knew the Netflix logo, opened it. And there's, based on your recent viewing history, we recommend scary. <laughs> and so Gavin is sitting there watching this. And I said, buddy, no. But we couldn't help but look at each other and laugh. Just it's crazy how technology advances and kids just catch on. That really has nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight, but it's just, I I promise from time to time to keep you guys updated on on the joys of Gavin. And so that was one from the last week or so that I wanted to share with you. But if you've been with us at all this year, this is our third year kind of taking our Wednesdays and focusing on real life. That's been the title of this series. And basically what we're trying to do is look at real life issues and what the Bible has to say about them. Because we live a real life. We, we have 
real jobs and real families and real problems and things that, that we go through on a day-to-day basis. And so it's important to look at things that would come our way and to know how we should approach them in the light of Scripture. And so we've taken, going on our third year now, committing Wednesday nights to walk through some of those things. Well, the last month, Dad has really uh, focused on apologetics. And apologetics, if, if you're unaware, is simply, it's a defense of the Christian faith. And it's not so much a defense... Um, to, to, just for the sake of argument, uh, and it's not an apology, but really it's a defense because we have a responsibility as believers to, to know the truth about what we believe. We say we follow Christ. We say we, we accept the Bible as the infallible true word of God. But do we really know what it has to say? And if, and if someone were to call us on the carpet and bring up some argument against the existence of God, would we know what the word has to say about that? First uh, Peter 3.15 says, Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. We have a responsibility to give a reason for the hope that we live our lives based upon. And so apologetics, like I said, it's not just about the defense for argument's sake. You know, ultimately, we don't want to win an argument. I believe we want to win a person. We don't, we don't want to win just to say that we're right, but we want to win so that that person can see what is right and see the truth. And ultimately, the way we live our life and, and, and the things that we base our life upon, it would transcend any intellectual blockades that would keep them from it being able to accept the reality of God and that they could ultimately see through the scriptures and through our lives the truth and, and that we could win that person and not just win the argument. And so the last few weeks, Dad's really been focusing on atheism. And, and there's a lot of people who don't, believe in God, and that would, that would be what you would call an atheist. There's some people who don't know quite what they believe, and there may be people here tonight. You know, I know we have a lot of believers, but you may have walked in and you don't necessarily believe in God, or you're not quite sure what you believe. And so we've just been walking through some of these issues when it comes to apologetics. But tonight, I want to look at a big one. It's a whammy. It's a doozy. And it's called The Problem of Evil. That, that's actually the title of the argument against the existence of God, The Problem of Evil. And I actually, when I was in college, I wrote a paper on this several different times. Um, it's always intrigued me, and, and I've done a lot of study on it. And so when Dad asked me to, to speak, and I knew we had been talking about apologetics, I said, you know what, it's brave, but I think I want to kind of go and address the problem of evil. Essentially, the problem of evil says this. It's, it's one of the greatest obstacles to belief in the existence of God, because th- this is what they say. It's impossible for God and evil to coexist. That's their argument. And so if God exists, then evil cannot exist. And if evil exists, then God cannot exist. So therefore, since there is evil in this world, they automatically arrive at the conclusion that God does not exist. Because there's evil, because there's pain, because there's suffering, how could there be a good God? How could he allow these things to take place? And that is one of the greatest arguments against uh, the belief of God. And the thing I realized as I've studied this is it's not just something that we need to give an answer for, for the person who's arguing it, for the unbeliever who would say there is no God. It's something we have to answer for ourselves. The, the fact that evil exists and that there is suffering, I think that's something we're all aware of in our lives. And we have to, we have the responsibility really to give an answer for that question. Ravi Zacharias, he's a famous apologist, theologian, writer, whatever you would want to call him, he is a genius, an amazing Christian man, and he's made uh, many resources available on apologetics and on defense of the faith. And this is what he says about evil and suffering. He said, let us remember that every worldview, not just Christianities, must give an explanation or an answer for evil and for suffering. 
This is not just a problem distinctive to Christianity. It will not do for the challenger just to raise the question. This problem of evil is one to which we all must offer an answer, regardless of the belief system to which we subscribe. And so while this argument is a big one for unbelievers against the existence of God, this argument or this issue that evil exists is a very big challenge for us as believers. I think if we're honest with ourselves. We're very aware, especially the day and age in which we live, that evil is real. It exists. We're very aware that suffering is, is not something that, is, that we're beyond. We've all experienced some level of suffering or, or pain in our life, and that's just a part of life. And, and so while the problem of evil may not keep us from believing in the existence of God as believers, I believe it is something that the enemy ultimately would want to use to lead us to doubt God and to question God and to ultimately get us to the point where we would lose faith in God. And so it's important that we have a clear, sound perspective on what the Bible actually says about suffering and evil. Suffering is a very sensitive um, topic to tackle in the church. And Dad has taught us that all extremes lead to error. You know, he, he uses the analogy of a road and two ditches. And a lot of times... With certain things, we end up in one ditch or the other. And, and we, we so often get swayed by emotion or by what someone else says, forgetting to look, what does the Bible have to say about this? And saying centered up. And it's an easy thing to do. But when it comes to suffering, there's two major camps, I believe, in the body of Christ. There would be the one way over here that would say suffering is God. He's causing that. He brings it about to teach us something. It's God doing that because he wants to show us something. And we need to embrace that suffering. And, and I, don't, I don't accept that. I don't, I don't think suffering is of God. There would be the other camp, which would say that we as believers are exempt from suffering. And that if, in fact, we do fall prey to pain or suffering, that it was because we simply didn't have enough faith. And that doesn't, that doesn't jive with me either. I believe both those are too far of extremes. And I think tonight, really, what I want to do is dive in and look at what the Word of God has to say about suffering and our perspective on it. You know, just to get real, um, like I said, we've all experienced suffering, whether it would be sickness or, or the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or maybe your home burnt down or maybe you've gone through a horrible divorce or whatever it would be. Suffering can be defined by anything that would bring us pain or sorrow in our life and try to derail us ultimately from the purpose that we have in God. And a few years back, uh, it's been about two years, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. It was a surprise to the family. Um, not that we didn't totally see it coming. There were some medical issues leading up to it, but the diagnosis nevertheless was scary. And the, the doctors didn't hide anything. They said, you know, they told him that you're a sick man. We, we believe we have a treatment plan that ultimately um, you, could, you could get through this, but it's not going to be easy. And so before he began that treatment plan, him and my grandmother went to one of their favorite vacation destinations. And while they were gone, he suffered a very severe stroke that put him in the hospital and with some complications, ultimately, after a few weeks, he lost his life. And so whether it was cancer or the stroke, it really doesn't matter. The, the, the thing is, my grandfather suffered. The family suffered. We felt the pain. It was real. We still feel the pain. And, and so looking at that situation, I'm not content to just park myself in one of those ditches. I'm not, I'm not going to look at that situation and, and stand over here and say, well, you know what? God caused that. God brought that on my grandfather because he wanted to teach us something. So I'm going to embrace it. 
No, that, w- that was not our reaction. When we found out he had cancer, and even after he had the stroke and he was in the hospital, we didn't stand for that and accept that as God was doing something. We, we, we strengthened our faith. We looked at the promises of God. We rallied around him in prayer. And so I'm not going to accept that extreme school of thought. And then you look at the other one that would say we're exempt from suffering and that if we do fall prey to suffering, it's because we didn't have enough faith. Well, who, is, who has the audacity to say my grandfather didn't have enough faith for his healing and for his restoration? Who, who would say that the family, even if he didn't have faith for who would say that the family didn't have faith to stand in the gap and pray and lift him up in that situation and believe for his supernatural healing? So I'm not going to accept that school of thought to say, oh, well, we lost him because there wasn't enough faith. That's not how God works. The, the Bible talks of men who died in the faith, and, and sometimes they're just things that we don't understand. But I want to look tonight at the problem of evil. And the problem of suffering. And, and really what I want to do, if you, if you took some time to study the problem of evil, you'll find that it's a very layered argument. It's not just a one-layered thing that there's a simple answer. Because unbelievers approach it, it's very complex, it's very intellectual, and they would argue it from multiple sides. There's the evidential problem of evil, the circumstantial problem of evil. There's all these different ways that they have of going against it. And, and theologians and apologists have a rebuttal for each and every one of those. But I don't think that... 20, 30 minutes on a Wednesday night, I'm going to have time or even have the full knowledge myself to help unpack that and us all walk away and say, yep, I think I got it. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. It's too layered of an argument. And so I would encourage you to study the problem of evil. But ultimately, what I want to do tonight is not necessarily combat every layer of that argument just for defense against an unbeliever. But what I want to do instead is give you, the believer, a reason for the hope that is within. Amen? Amen. One thing that I think we've all done in tough circumstances when experiencing pain or dealing with loss is we ask why. We ask why. Anyone who's ever walked through something hard, one of the first reactions, and it's natural, us as humans, is why? Why did that happen? Why did God allow that to happen? Why me? Why? Why? And I don't think it's wrong to ask that question. I think it's it's understandable. We've all done it. We're intellectual beings. It's just how we're wired. We want to know how things work. We want to feel like we're in control. We want to fill in the blanks. And so when something happens that just turns our world upside down, we ask why. And this is really how I look at it. Even if God answered why, would it change anything? Even if he filled in that blank, even if he gave you an answer, would it change the reality of the pain? Would it speed up your healing process? Would it, would it, would it change the situation? I, I, don't, I don't think that it would. I think when we ask why, really it's just our own limitations intellectually. We're, we're so far inferior to God and his knowledge and his power. And so if God were to actually fill in that blank, would we even understand it? There's so many things God knows because he wove time and he wove creation and he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. There's already things that we see in his word that boggle our minds. And so even if he gave a reason for why suffering was endured, would it, would we understand? Would it change anything? Now, if you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is full of wisdom. And one of the biggest things it instructs us to do is to get wisdom. Specifically, chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Getting wisdom is the wisest thing that you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. 
So we have a responsibility to get wisdom. Elsewhere in the Proverbs, it says, if you lack wisdom, then ask. You know, God freely gives. And I believe we can approach him and ask for wisdom and ask for understanding. But get this. One of the first things to understand in getting wisdom is that it begins with the humility to accept that there's some things that God knows that we just don't know. So if we're going to approach God and ask for wisdom, believe that he'll give it to you. But that doesn't mean unlimited understanding. Only he holds that. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. So it says right there, there's things that only God understands. There's a secret realm. And we too often find ourselves focusing on the secret, wanting to fill in the blanks, wanting to know why. Those aren't the things God has revealed to us. But he has revealed his will to us, his promises, his faithfulness. There's much that he's revealed to us in our lives and in his word. And that is ultimately what we're responsible for. So let's not waste our time, our energy, our emotions trying to play God and trying to understand only what he would understand. He can give us wisdom, but only he has all knowledge. And so if we're going to look at the existence of evil and we're going to look at suffering, we need to look at the story. We need to look at the origin of sin and of suffering and and look really at the fall of man. And if you've um, grown up in the church, like I grew up in the church. I've talked about this before. I, I, I went to Christian school, and so I heard Bible stories my whole life. And whether you're a believer or not, we've all heard the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and God gives them the command, do not touch the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else in that area was theirs, but that's the one thing he specifically did not want them to go near. And, and like, like many of us, it's the things that we know we're not supposed to touch, the things that are forbidden that we desire the most. And so ultimately, Adam and Eve sinned, and they partook of the fruit. And what happened after that, what that yielded, was suffering and pain and sin and hate and lies and hurting and sickness and things that weren't a part of the earth at that time. And so I think in our elementary mindsets, if we, when we look at that story, we think, well, the the fix is simple. All, All God has to do is erase what happened at the garden and everything would be perfect. And it's not that easy. And first of all, by not permitting the problem, we take away the solution. But by not permitting that there was sin and that man is fallen, then we take away the need for a savior. We take away the need for Jesus. We take away the need for his grace. So yes, there was a problem, but we have a savior. We have grace. And so permit the problem. Realize that the fall of man happened and we are living in the consequence of that sin. And you may say, well, why would God let them sin? Why why would God let Adam and Eve sin? God knew everything before time began and he knew that they would sin. So you may say, well, then why would God create someone that he knew would blatantly sin against him? Yeah, it's mind-boggling, but here's the deal. God made us with a free will. He made us with choice. God is not a puppet master. He's not manipulative or forceful. He made us with choice, ultimately because he wanted us to be free to choose or reject him. What value would that love be if he forced everyone to love and to receive him? He gave us that choice, and we all have that choice today to choose God and to embrace his existence and his presence in our life or to deny it. And so God gave that choice. And Adam and Eve had, or I'm sorry, God gave us choice. And Adam and Eve, out of their free will, they chose to sin. And so with that sin came consequence. And with that consequence came evil and suffering. And so 
Even if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, man still would have because we had that, that choice. So know that even if the garden was erased, that's not the ultimate fix. Sin was bound to come into the world. Now, understand this. God is not the author of evil. God is the author of a story that includes evil, but we invited it in. Man invited evil in out of our own free will. But just because God authored our story does not mean he's the author of evil. Don't confuse foreknowledge with causation. Don't confuse the fact that just because God knew something would happen or just because he knew sin would enter the world, that he somehow caused it. An important argument for apologetics and for the defense and existence of God says that God is good. So whatever is good is of God and whatever is not good is not of God. So if there is evil in your life, if if there is suffering, I tell you, it's not of God. It's not of God. And when we question God, when we ask why, and we assume that we know the fix or the answer, or that we somehow, if we were in control, we could fix it. When we do those things, we assume that we know what God should do. And ultimately that's the problem. God is all knowing. He's all powerful. He's all wise. He's all loving. He's perfectly good. He's so far beyond us. So how could we, in our inferior limitation of all those, or our our limitations of knowledge and of love and all those things that he fully is, how could we for a second know what God should or could do? And so rather than question God in a hard time or in a tough circumstance or assume that we know what he should do, I believe we need to change the target of our doubt. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In John 16, 33, this is Jesus talking, and he says, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And so right there, Jesus himself, the son of God, our savior, saying that there is going to be hardships. There will be suffering. He he prophesies it right there. So we shouldn't be surprised. Maybe it's that school of thought who thinks we're exempt from from suffering that you think, oh, wow, suffering just came. And then it's a false perspective because it totally rocks your world because you weren't braced for it or you ignored the very fact that Jesus says you're going to endure hardships while on this earth. So when problems arise, don't lose your faith in a good God. Lose your faith in a false doctrine. Lose your faith in a preconceived false mindset of what suffering looks like in our earth. 1 Peter four twelve through 13 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So it says it right there. Don't be surprised when things come your way, but realize that in those situations, we can't identify with Christ and the suffering that he endured ultimately for us. And once we're through that season of pain, once we are victoriously on the other side, we'll be able to look back at where we were and where God has taken us and rejoice victoriously at the glory that he will reveal to us. If not on this earth, ultimately in his final restoration, when he makes all things new and he takes us up. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. And so just because God is not the author of evil, in an evil situation, he can still turn it for good. He can take something ugly and make it beautiful. He can take what the devil meant for for our pain and for our devastation. He can turn that into something beautiful. And we need to stand on that promise and realize that whatever you're going through, 
regardless of how dark it is, regardless of how long it seems like you've been camped out in this valley and wondering if you're going to see the other side and see the light at the end of the tunnel, realize that God can take anything that you're going through and he could turn it into something beautiful. He could shift your perspective and he could show you the things you've taken for granted and he can bring you restoration. He will get you through victoriously in your situation. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Notice it says, be thankful in all circumstances. It doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances. And so that goes back to that other school of thought I was talking about, where we completely embrace suffering as if it was a gift from God. No, we don't need to be thankful for those things, but we can be thankful in those things. We don't have to be thankful for the bad situation, but we can be thankful in it. And ultimately, just because our circumstances aren't good doesn't mean that God isn't. And just because our circumstances have changed doesn't mean that God has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so beyond wanting to know why something has happened or beyond um, feeling like we would be able to fix it or that we somehow know what God should do, I think one of the things that we really are asking when we go through hard times is, God, will you still love me? Will you still be here for me through this? Will you see me through victoriously? And, and I realize we're people of faith. We're to exercise strong faith. But let's be real. We, we have a, a flesh. We have a, a fallen mind. And so there's doubt and there's, there's attacks of the enemy and there's lies and things that would creep in and try to get us to waver and, and to shake us in our faith. And so, yes, we've all been at that place where we're going through something hard. And we say, God, how? How, how am I going to get through this? Will you be with me? Through this, And so I want to look at, at a specific story, which I think a lot of us can relate to. It's in Mark chapter 9, and basically there's this man who has a boy who's demon-possessed. And he has these fits of rage where he, he's thrown into fire and into water, and the father believes the demons are trying to kill him. And he drops on the floor in convulsions. And some scholars say that it was epilepsy, um, epileptic seizures. Obviously at that time... They, they wouldn't have had the medicine or the science to diagnose that. But whether it was epilepsy or whether it was demon possession, either way, he was suffering. Either way, the boy was going through something and the father knew that he needed to be delivered, knew that he needed to be healed. And so he brings the boy to the disciples and the disciples are unable to heal him. They're unable to cast out this demon or this sickness. And so they bring the boy before Jesus along with the father. And the father cries to Jesus. He says, Picking up in verse 22. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my own belief. And ultimately Jesus goes on and he heals the boy and he explains to the the disciples how he was able to do so. But what I want to look at specifically is the father and how so often we are that father. We have a problem, we have a hardship, and we know good and well enough to bring it to Jesus. We know to bring it to God. And, and, and just as the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. It's, it's easy initially, but then those cares start creeping back and we start carrying them again. And there's something about our intellect that it's hard to completely just give God this situation. We trust he can do it. And while we say we've given it to him, then in our own mind, we continue to keep asking questions and trying to fill in the blanks. And how is he going to pull this one off? How is this going to happen? And the father, like I said, he had enough faith to bring his son to Jesus, but he was unable to expel his own doubts. The Bible commands us to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. And 
I don't believe that the hard part is loving him with our soul and our strength and our heart. I believe that's the easier part. Really, the hard part is loving and further trusting him completely with our mind. That's the intellectual realm. And that's really where the need for apologetics comes in. That's where, where, where we tend to go off is when we question things with our mind. Because the goal ultimately of apologetics is to remove the intellectual obstacles from someone who would not believe in the love of God. And Dad has taught on this recently. Um, he did a series at the beginning of the year called Begin Again. He did one just over a year ago called Through Faith. And it's simply the concept of a through faith. Basically that it often takes more faith to get through something victoriously than to be delivered from something. To go through that storm, through that valley, through that season, that takes more faith than to be instantly delivered. Now, hold up. Does God deliver us instantly? Yes. Can he? Yes. Has he done it in my own life? Yes. Will he continue to do it? Yes. God is all-powerful and there's nothing he cannot do. But is that the rule that God always instantly delivers us? No. It it doesn't always work out that way. And rather than stand around and, and question and try to figure it out for ourselves, our responsibility, our focus, our perspective to, to, should be to be centered up and have a through faith to trust God even in the darkest parts of our life to see us through victoriously on the other side. Now, I think it's important in our lives, we have to have promises. Look, look, at, look at the promises of God. I have my promises. I, I have scriptures, quick draw scriptures, I call them, that regardless of what I'm going through, I have, a, um, Dad said it before, for every problem, there's a promise. When there's things I'm going for, through, I have a promise that I go to, and I know where it's found. And so it's important that you guys find those promises of God, that you find a promise for every problem that you would be going through. But in finding those promises, I think it's also important when you want to look at God's faithfulness and God's track record, look at how he delivered people in the Bible. Look at the things he did and the, and the very origin of those promises when they were initially made. If anyone knew how to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ, it would be the Apostle Paul. Paul went through so many hardships while on this earth fulfilling his mission. He knew what it was to suffer. He went through some wretched things that many of us will never uh, experience, much less even be able to fathom. And... Specifically, Philippians chapter 4, the whole book is full of promises. That's actually one of my favorite books in the Bible, Philippians 4. Because I can go through and it's just so full of encouraging promises. But the amazing thing about that book is Paul wasn't sitting in a hammock drinking a lemonade, writing it out on his iPad to the church of Philippi. He was, scholars believe he was in prison. And so even then, it's not like prison as we would picture it today where you have your own cell and you've got stripes and you get three meals a day and you, you get outside time. No, the, the, the prison that he was likely in, he was sitting in sewage, in, in darkness, and, and it was a horrible, wretched situation. But yet, Paul wrote this very promise in Philippians four nineteen. He says, The same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And even though Paul's circumstances were so horrible, his perspective was so great. He knew his source. And do we have that kind of through faith? Do we have that kind of reliance on God's promises and on his faithfulness to know that even if we are in pitch black and sewage, and hopefully none of us have, <laughs> have gone through that, but whatever your, your storm, whatever your valley, You have the faith to say, my God will supply all of my needs. He will take me through. I know who my source is. Amen? 
Just as Paul suffered, another one who suffered greatly in his time on earth would be King David. From the time he was a boy shepherd to the time he was king on the throne, there was not many seasons that were smooth sailing for David. A lot of times David dropped the ball and David messed up. Uh, But there were some hard things that David went through. But nevertheless, God still showed himself faithful. God still carried David through. He still continued to use him. Don't ever say that there's anything in your life that was so great that you did wrong that God can't use you. Look at the Bible. He didn't use perfect people. God used people that were a mess, and he worked mightily through them. And David is a great example. Paul is a great example. Paul was one of the greatest ministers and, and, and one of the biggest advocates and catalysts for the local church and equipping the local church and expanding the kingdom of God. But Paul used to persecute Christians. So anything you've done is not past the point of God's redemption. But going back to David, David knew what it was to suffer greatly. But yet he wrote the book of Psalms and, and repeatedly we see in the Psalms him crying out to God and singing praises of God's faithfulness. And, and this would be another um, chapter that I find as one of my favorites in the Bible, Psalm 23. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Again, David, his circumstances a lot of times were rough, but his perspective was great. Let's be a Paul. Let's be a David. Admit that our lives aren't perfect. Admit that, yes, there may be evil. There may be suffering. There may be things that the enemy creeps in. But in those times, how is our perspective? Do we know what the word says? Do we know his promises? Do we know our source and where our help comes from? And so as we looked tonight at the problem of evil and the, the, the very reality and the existence of such suffering that exists in the world today, the unbeliever would raise the question that if evil exists, how can you say your good God exists? And so even though that is a great objection to the existence of God, at the end of the day, God is the only solution to the problem of evil. If God does not exist, if we just settle for the fact and say, okay, well, yeah, that person's right. There's evil and there's suffering. And if God's good, how could he let those things happen? And we just settle that God doesn't exist based on that argument. Then all we've done is settled for a life where we're lost without hope, a life where, where there's unredeemed suffering. But if we embrace the fact that God is active and God is powerful and he is living in our lives, then yes, there may be suffering, but we have redemption. Yes, there may be pain, but we have a hope. We have a future. We have someone who holds us and lifts us up. So don't settle for, for the fact that you think God wouldn't exist based on the fact that evil exists. Know that even if it does, we have redemption and we will see his glory. Randy Alcorn, he's an amazing writer. I would consider him another apologist. And we hear so often people say the question, why doesn't God just do something about evil? And Randy Alcorn has this to say. Jesus' death on the cross is God's breathtaking answer to the question, why don't you do something about evil? We we sit around and we question and we hear people question. And and how could God let that happen? What what is God going to do? Wake up. It's done. 
It's done. He finished it. When he paid that price, when he made that sacrifice and the veil was torn, there was a new dimension for us to approach the Father, where our sin had separated us, where there was a chasm that we could not approach a Father because of our own sin. He sent his very Son to lay down his life for our redemption, for our hope, for our restoration, so that we could boldly approach the Father. And so that we would have a life full of promises. He answered that question. His word says everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. And a lot of times we sit around waiting on God when his very promises are right in front of us. When the answer is already there. When when it's really just us choosing to take part in what God has freely given us. We are a part of his story. And while there may be evil on this earth, there's there's something that we have. And that is his presence. And his dad has been teaching on Sundays. We have purpose while we're here. And we have his full provision in this life. And so while this life is not perfect, we are flooded with his blessings. He's taking care of us. We can taste a glimpse of his love and his glory here. And ultimately we will experience his glory forevermore. Revelations 21. This is the climax of the Bible. This is the end. And and we see God in, in chapter 21. This would be the triumph over evil. This would be where we start to see him making things new. Verse 4, chapter 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And so regardless of what you're going through today, now, in the year to come, things you don't even know that may be coming, I promise you God will get you through here on this earth. He'll show himself faithful. And your, your perspective will be tested. But what is your perspective going to be in those times? Will you know your source? But ultimately, the best part is that when all is said and done, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, because he will be making all things new forever. And that is a reason for the hope that is within. Amen. Did y'all get anything out of this tonight? Thank you, Jesus.